It all began here, in darkness, stuck in our brokenness, wandering, directionless, in need of a grace we knew nothing about. It's not much of a beginning, but this is where we were. Fast forward to a starry night in Bethlehem. You see, while we were lost in darkness, God was consumed by love. A love which led him to do the unimaginable. A love which would cost him his son. That night, the heart of Christmas began beating with a rhythm that would change the world. Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, was born. Grace in a manger, love in the flesh, Hope had overcome hopelessness. Mercy had triumphed over brokenness. And love had overpowered the darkness. Today, we celebrate that moment. We worship our Messiah. And we stand in awe of the life-changing gift God has given us. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the true heart of Christmas. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, quick question. Have you ever heard or experienced something that was both encouraging and discouraging at the same time? Sometimes those moments are thrust on you. We had a car that we got rid of a few years ago, but it was the car we got when we realized we were going to have kids. We, uh, we found out we were pregnant with Hallie, and we're not minivan people. Nothing wrong with minivans, some pretty awesome features on minivans. Minivans are great road trip vehicles, but we were just not minivan people. So we got a 2006 Chevy Trailblazer Extended Edition. Love that car. It was so awesome. And it was a great car for me, for our family. Great car to have chunks of Cheerios stuck down in the seat. Uh, so it just kind of became that kind of a car. But as it got older, uh, it was in a couple accidents and, uh, you know, different things and got older. And uh, about a year before we got rid of it, it started showing signs of some wear and tear as a result of that accident up by the front wheel and the axle somewhere. It was just making weird noises and doing different things. We knew it was going to be an issue at some point. But eventually, it just got to where we were just, man, I don't know if this thing is safe. So we took it in. And it was a little bit precarious because we weren't in a situation where we could just run right out and buy a new car. So it was one of those car things we were pretty nervous about. So we took it to a guy that we know up in Canton, just a really good guy, really trusted his opinion. And he, he, he took it back and said he'd take a look. And I, so I'm sitting in the lobby area, and the worst case scenario of any consumer starts to unfold in front of me. I'm looking back to where I can see my car, and he's got the wheel off, and he's looking all up in this thing, and he's shining his flashlight and sure enough, he starts calling other guys over. And I can hear him going, hey, Rich, have you ever seen this before? And this is a guy who's been doing cars for 40 years. I'm like, oh, no, we have blown the mind of an experienced mechanic. And so he's looking at this thing, and eventually he called me back, and he's showing me. And please don't ask me follow-up questions. My brain does not speak car. So everything I'm telling you is exactly what I know and understand. So so he starts showing me what's going on, something with a CV joint, possibly. And he's like, Justin, here's how it's supposed to look. Here's how it does look. And see how I can wiggle that? Not supposed to wiggle. And he's showing me all these things. And he's like, Justin, this isn't great. We could fix this, but you're not going to like it. 
It's expensive. It's going to cost more than the car is worth. So I'm thinking, oh, man, it's so frustrating. It's like, it's that, like your, your heart sinks. And you're trying to figure out what is going to be our next option. And then he goes, but we could just take it out. And I'm thinking, that sounds like something I would come up with. You are the expert. What is our option? So he's like, listen, here, here's how it works. We could take this out. The wheel will just spin free. It was a real, 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 real drive vehicle. So he said, it'll just stay in real wheel. You'll have to put a piece of duct tape over the four-wheel drive switch so nobody accidentally engages it. But it'll run free. It'll be safe. It's not a great long-term solution, but it's an option. And I walked out of there feeling extremely demoralized, and encouraged at the same exact time. It was kind of a, a strange mixture of emotions. So that was, that was one scenario. But sometimes those types of conversations happen on purpose. So um, I have to imagine there's a few college football fans in the crowd this morning. Anybody feeling good? Right? Michigan, not a bad day, right? Go blue. I know some of you guys were at the game. Uh, Michigan State won. I don't know if anybody cares but state won. But it just kind of felt like one of those, like a great Michigan day. Like Michigan beat Ohio State. State won in a snowstorm, which is total like Thanksgiving in Michigan, which was awesome. And it just, remind, it just made me feel like, man, imagine the celebration when the Lions win a game, right? Just <laughs> how emotional that'll be for all of us. It'll just be, man, I just hope I'm watching with my kids and we can just have that memory. Maybe my grandkids will be there when the Lions win a game. But anyways... On the opposite end of the uh, football spectrum, the Alabama Crimson Tide for a long time have been kind of the peak uh, of the college football world. And their coach, Nick Saban, has a way of interacting with his players and, and even with the media. So back in 2015, they were coming off a stretch where they had lost 12 games total over like eight years, which is crazy. They had won three national titles. Um, and in 2015, about the middle of the season, they were 6-1. and one. They had fully recovered from a loss earlier in the season. They had just beaten top 10 Texas A&M, moving in a great direction. Actually, they ended up winning the national title that season as well. But Nick Saban, their coach, had, a, had this moment in the middle of the season where he's talking to the media. And I think in the middle of it, he realizes that in the midst of the encouragement, in the midst of the good stuff, there needed to be a little bipolar vibe to the conversation, and he needed to infuse the other side of it as well. So check out this quick video of that press conference. Well, offensively, the first few drives of the, the last few games have been pretty effective. Uh, I think three, four, three, three and outs in the first uh, four drives tonight. What, what do you think was the issue there? I think we've already said what the issue is. They're front seven. We couldn't run the ball effectively. Um, I, I don't, we just didn't play as well tonight. You've got to give them a lot of credit for it. So... Um, you know, I'm trying to get our players to listen to me instead of listening to you guys. You know, all that stuff you write about how good we are and all that stuff they hear on ESPN, it's like poison. You know what I mean? It's like taking poison, like rat poison. All right, so I'm, I'm asking them, are you going to listen to me or are you going to listen to these guys about how good you are? All right, just like your question right now, we get stopped three out of four times, like that's a bad thing. We're not going to beat everybody 66 to three. So there you have it. Uh, he, he has a certain way of saying things. And basically what he's saying is in the midst of all the good stuff you're feeling, what you're feeling right now is fool's gold. There are things to celebrate, things to, to feel good about. In the rest of the press conference, there are positive moments. But even though you're feeling pretty good about things, you've recovered from the loss, what we're going to need is more. And what we find out in a situation like that, in a situation with the car, some of these other types of things, sometimes both a negative rebuke 
and a positive reminder are exactly what's needed in the moment. And in many ways, that's what we find in the book of Malachi. Uh, We are going to be doing Christmas in Malachi over the next few weeks. I know that sounds a little bit odd, like we're not doing a character study on uh, Mary and and the donkey and uh, the sheep in in the stable. I'm not above a series like that. We've probably done it before. But this year we're doing Christmas in Malachi um, and in many ways, what, what we saw from Coach Saban, what I experienced with the car, this, this bipolar thing, bipolar conversation, is what we find. And so as we get into this, we'll, we'll be doing three or four weeks in it. It'll conclude on Christmas Eve. Um, you'll kind of see where Christmas plays out, and we'll address it this morning as well. But I want to start in Malachi 1.1 uh, before we start picking through some of the verses. Just want to give a little bit of an overview of what we're stepping into here in the book of Malachi. So in Malachi 1.1, it simply says this, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. So Malachi is literally the last book of the Old Testament. And not all the books are laid out in chronological order in, in the way that our Old Testament lays out. But Malachi is what most believe the last one that was written before God went silent for 400 years uh, before Jesus showed up on earth. But Malachi is what's known as a minor prophet in the Old Testament, not because it's less important, but because it's simply short, right? It's a little bit more concise, whereas you have your Isaiahs and your Jeremiahs that just kind of feel like they go on and on and on, 40, 50 plus chapters with a ton of content, a lot of things that God had to say in those times. Malachi is a little shorter, may or may not have been written by a guy named Malachi. Malachi simply means my messenger, So it could have been another author under the pseudonym of Malachi, could have even been Ezra writing this, but really length, length, uh, authorship, not as important as the actual content in the book. And so it says it's a prophecy. Now this is compared to Isaiah, compared to Jeremiah, compared to Ezekiel and some of these other books in the Old Testament, it's a different kind of a prophecy. Because what we find in those other books, if you read through Isaiah, what what he's saying is, there's some really bad stuff coming. We have strayed from the Lord. God's not happy. You're going to experience his rebuke. You're going to experience some punishment coming from God. We're going to have some consequences. Oh, boy, it's here. We're living it. And they ended up in exile, taken away from their homeland, 10 of the Israelite tribes taken out of the promised land by the Assyrian Empire. And Isaiah called it. Other prophets of the time called it. Fast forward to Jeremiah a few years later. Same type of a thing. Hey, the remaining two tribes, things are not going well. We're not obedient to what God has called us to. We're going to experience some consequences. Things are going to get bad. Things are going to get bad. Guess what? Things are bad. There's some pretty rough things said about Israel in some of these other prophetic books through the Old Testament. But in the midst of it, in the midst of these terrible things, there are moments where guys like Isaiah, guys like Jeremiah say, it's going to get better, right? Things are bad now. If we turn, if we come back to God, he'll free us, he'll deliver us. There will be redemption in the midst of these consequences that we're experiencing. So these are the common themes that you find in all these other prophetic books throughout the Old Testament, but Malachi is different. See, the exile is over. They're home. And he provides no warning of another exile. Jerusalem is being rebuilt. Depending on the timeline, maybe it's all ready to go. The temple being rebuilt, the walls being rebuilt. You can read Nehemiah and and Ezra to kind of find out how that thing all plays out. And there's no warning, at least at this point, of the temple being destroyed again. And so we find Malachi doing something a little bit different. What he's doing is what Coach Saban did. He's saying at the same time, defining the reality of their present struggles... Struggles to follow God, struggles with apathy, things that we're going to address over the next couple weeks. And at the same time, 
telling of a future that's better, a coming messenger, a coming Messiah, the fulfillment of all the promises that God had been laying out through all of their scriptures. And so what, what Malachi is drawing their attention to as we get in these next few chapters is their version of fool's gold. See, Israel is back from exile, yes. Jerusalem is being rebuilt, yes. And so in some ways, you read through it and you're thinking, man, things must be going well. They've they've turned back to God. All things are good. He's blessing. See, when they're in exile, they're saying, when are we going to be back? When will we be freed from this people? When When will we be able to go back to the promised land and rebuild and start over and make things good again? And it finally happens, and there's some glimmer of hope, some glimmer of change that maybe they've learned. Maybe things will be different sometime. But what we find out is that a change in location is not the same as a change in heart. See, what they had was some false hope, thinking if we simply do what we once did only better, we'll be fine. If we do things the right way, if we do things the best way, if we do things the way Abraham did and David did and Solomon did and all these heroes of our ancestors, if we can just do what they did will be good. That'll fix everything. If we do all the right things, that'll be the solution. If we pick all the right leaders, that'll be the solution. If we rebuild correctly, that'll be the solution. But without a heart change, there is no solution. Because what we see throughout history, and even in this time of Malachi, human behavior has never been the solution. Human leadership has never been the solution. Human decision-making has never been the solution to our biggest problem. And so with all of that in mind, Malachi in many ways becomes a Christmas prequel. Not because things were any better or worse in his time, but because the things that he lays out are basically a highlight reel of where people go when they lack a real solution, when they lack a real savior. And those are some of the things that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. What are things that people, God's people do when they've walked away or turned their back on or simply forgotten about the real solution that God offers? And what we see in Malachi is the reason why Christmas had to happen. And I want us to remember over the course of these next few weeks, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of things where we say it's, it's them or what they're doing or what they're experiencing, but the message is there certainly for them to learn from it in the moment, but it's for us. It's for you. And the first issue I want to jump into this week is kind of talking about God's relationship with the world because there's two sides of it. There's God's relationship with the people who have chosen to follow him, how he interacts with them, how he provides for them, how he works in their life, and the relationship that he has with those who have chosen not to engage with him and follow him and obey him, and how those two relationships are tied together. So let's jump to the next verse there. Um, And just so you know, yes, if we go three verses a week, we will not get through it in four weeks. So this week's a little bit uh, unique, and we'll kind of jump around over the next few weeks. But Malachi 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask how have you loved us, right? Because their last few decades were rough. Right? They, they've been gone, ripped from their homeland, families ripped apart, generations out of the promised land. They're finally coming back. Like, how, how have you loved us? I have loved you, but you ask, how have you loved us? And God gives a kind of an interesting answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob... But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So how, how have I loved you? Strange answer to bring up Jacob and Esau. 
He says, well, I chose Jacob, and that represents Israel, and look how I've treated him and his people. I didn't choose Esau. Look how his people have turned out. Look at the legacy that he has enjoyed. And this is a tough passage to read because this, this ties in and actually shows up in Romans chapter 9, which is another difficult chapter where God says, listen, who are you? Right? Who, who are you to question me? I rose up Pharaoh just so that I could bring him down for my glory. Look at Jacob. Look at Esau. And he says, as a human being, you are clay for me to mold and shape how I want, how I please, to use you for my purposes. Who are you to question me? And so this, this feels like a difficult passage. Really. Like how, how could God choose these people and make everything wonderful for them and bless them and keep promises to them and then have this people over here that he chooses to do the exact opposite of? But, but th- in the midst of this, we're not supposed to read these verses with modern-day love and hate emotions. right? Because these, these were the best English words to use. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. But we're not supposed to read it with the same connotations as when we use love and hate here. Because in, in the Old Testament covenant language, in, in the covenant relationship that God formed with his people, love simply means they're in the covenant relationship. And hate means they're outside of the covenant relationship. And so he's reminding them of these promises that he had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and reminding them of how things look when people chose to be a part of that relationship and how people... Uh, the lives people enjoyed when they were outside of that relationship. And there's a stark difference in how life is experienced in the covenant relationship with God, how he interacts, how he provides, how he pursues them, and how life is lived by those outside of that covenant relationship. God continues on into verse 4 there. Malachi 1.4. Edom may say, now Edom, those are the ancestors of Esau. So this is a continuation of the Jacob and Esau thing. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. And so we have Edom, these descendants of Esau, basically representing all of those who have chosen to live outside of a relationship with God. And God says, Edom, these people have totally rejected me in my ways. And so look what I've done to them. Look what I will continue to do to them. It doesn't matter how hard they try. It doesn't matter how often they make an attempt to rebuild and do things their own way by their own strength and their own wisdom. There will never be a self-made solution. Now, something to consider in the midst of this. Some of this is God choosing things and and directing things, but some of this is God simply allowing people to live in the brokenness that comes with the choices that they make, the natural consequences of living outside of a relationship with him, the natural consequences of doing life by their own strength and their own wisdom, as opposed to living life fully dependent on God and leaning into the relationship that he offers. And so God says, you can certainly take things into your own hands. You have the freedom to do what you want your way by your wisdom in your strength. And you might even experience a couple steps forward and a little bit of success doing things that way. But in the end, when you do it your way by your strength in your wisdom, it will always end with destruction. God says, there is a huge difference between how I will interact and bless you in a relationship with me versus how I will interact and allow you to experience life outside of a relationship with me. We'll finish with verse 5 today. God says, You will see it with your own eyes, these things that he does, this, 
these contrasting relationships with people who choose to be on the inside and people who choose to live on the outside. You'll see all that with your own eyes and you'll say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So his, his glory is not simply in what he allows in the land of those who reject him. It's in the contrast in the lives of those who choose him and those who reject him. Because those who are not his people, they have no experience with his presence. But those who are his people, he has a constant commitment to them and his relationship with them and his pursuit of them. Now, in the midst of a relationship with God, do we experience punishment and consequences? Absolutely. Are there difficult seasons for those who are walking with God? Yes, absolutely. But in the midst of that, does he hear their cries? Yes. And does he come to their defense? Yes. Even if they don't deserve it? Yes. Especially when they don't deserve it. And he says all of this, all of these things that he's doing to bring glory to himself, those are, that's not just going to happen within the borders of Israel. It's going to happen outside of there. Let's, um, I want to look real quick at Isaiah 49 because this idea comes up uh, there as well. Isaiah 49, I'm going to read 3 and 6. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. And then in verse 6, God says, it's too small of a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. So this is when they're still in exile and God is promising that things will get better. They will be brought back. They will be delivered. And God says, me delivering you back to your promised land isn't big enough. I can save you. I can restore all the things that I've promised you. I can bring you back. We can, we can fix all this, but I'm thinking of something way bigger than just fixing Israel and bringing you back. He says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God says, this is bigger than the restoration of a building, the temple. God says, this is, this is bigger than bringing you back into the land that I promised. This is bigger than anything you have in mind. God says, out of you, Israel, out of the things I'm going to do in you, the world gets to see what it looks like to walk with the Lord. And in Christ, all the promises God makes to Israel gets extended to the rest, to the rest of the world. You see, as we see in the next few weeks, as we dig into Malachi, Old Testament Israel may have forgotten him. And in many ways, they may have grown apathetic towards him and strayed from his ways, but he had not forgotten about them, and he had not forgotten about his plan for them and his plan for the world. And so in this book, Malachi, like a great football coach, God offers both a necessary rebuke of our current struggles and a powerful reminder of his plan to fix it. In some ways, discouraging. In many ways, powerfully encouraging. God says, I'm going to challenge you on some things. There's some things that I see in my people. There's some things I see in you that aren't good enough. My standard for you hasn't been lowered. My will is still the same. I'm still calling you to the same things. Fullness of life is not found in the way that you're going. But know this, he says, I will keep my covenant. I will bring about the fulfillment of everything that I've been promising. I will provide the ultimate solution for your hurts and your pain and your sin. And not just for Israel, but for the entire world. And the world's a big deal, but even bigger deal for us, he did it for me. And it's a promise for you.
And so in this Christmas season, it's going to be a common question over the next few weeks. What have you chosen to do with that covenant relationship? What is the place you've chosen to take in the midst of that relationship? That relationship is defined throughout the Old Testament scriptures all the way up through Malachi. It's been extended to us through Jesus, this baby that came on Christmas morning, this God-man that grew up and became the ultimate sacrifice for us. Have you accepted that offer? Because Jesus had to come because of the mess we find ourselves in, in Malachi and everywhere before and everywhere since. Our sin, our brokenness, everything that we experience is on us. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we have chosen to run from the relationship with God, and yet because of Jesus, we can enter back into it. And even in the midst of the ups and downs of life, the highs and the lows, the good decisions and the bad ones, the joys and the consequences, we can experience freedom and forgiveness in Christ. I just want to give you an opportunity, because a lot of familiar faces, of course, but just don't know where everybody's at. If you do me a favor and bow your head and close your eyes, and just going to pray a very simple prayer. And there's nothing magical about these words. There's nothing... Uh, it doesn't have to be word for word, but simply, if you have never chosen to respond to that offer of a relationship with Jesus, man, today would be a great day. This would be a great Christmas season to do that, to fully understand and lean in to what God has offered. Because as we're going to find out over the next few weeks, we're, we're no better than the Israelites in Malachi. We have the same apathy. We have the same inconsistencies. We have the same faithlessness. And yet in the midst of that, God offers something amazing. And if in our heart of hearts we simply say, God, I believe in you. I believe you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life and then die for my sins. I believe that he's the only way. And God, I want that relationship with you. Come into my life. Forgive my sins. Heal me from the inside out. And from this moment forward, help me to love you and live for you. Amen. And that's what Christmas is all about. Whether we get there through the story in Luke or we get there through Malachi, it's going to end up at the same place. It's going to end up with Jesus. It begins and ends with him. And if you made that decision this morning, or if you're struggling through that decision, if you have questions, or if you're trying to take some next steps in your spiritual walk, we would love to come alongside you in the midst of that. Let us know uh, on the connection card at the info center table. You can check, hey, I, I made this decision, or write a question on the back of that, stick it in the black box. Um, we're not going to annoy you. We're not going to show up on your doorstep, but we might call you, might shoot you an email. You say, hey, how can we help? Might make some recommendations of some books or some small groups to jump into or some studies to try. Uh, because Christmas is great, but it's a fantastic season to be evaluating ourselves. Not only are we in the relationship, but are we being obedient to that relationship even as Christ followers? Um, we'll get into that quite a bit more over the next few weeks, but um, I want to encourage you. I, I know with uh, the holidays, there's a lot of travel and in and out. If you can't be with us, uh, tune in on YouTube Live. Uh, or, or jump and grab the audio on the website after Sunday and keep up with this series. I think it'll be a good one to get us where we need to be uh, as we head towards Christmas. So uh, thanks for being here this afternoon. Kids who are in here, fantastic job. Love having you guys in here. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. <laughs>